listening to the Coronavirus Diaries, Human Rights in the Age of a Global Pandemic, a series of online conversations with experts hosted by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. The Institute is Canada's leading think tank, working at the intersection of human rights, conflict, and emerging technologies. As we watch the global pandemic unfold, this series will look at what impacts the coronavirus will have on human rights, geopolitics, and democracy, and what role technology and disinformation will play. My name is Marie Lamench. I work at the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies at Concordia University. Welcome to the Coronavirus Diaries, or daily conversations about the impact of the global pandemic on human rights and democracy. And right now, I'm very happy to welcome Ali Funk, who is a research analyst at Freedom House, and specifically at Freedom House on, on the Nest. Net and basically you are an expert on human rights and democracy in the digital age. Thank you very much for joining us. Can you tell us about a little bit about your work in general and what you do? I know Freedom House has a very interesting report every year on internet freedom. Yes, so first I'll start. Freedom House um, is a watchdog organization. We've been around since 1941, um, really working to protect and expand democracy and human rights in the US and also globally. So I focus on our Freedom on the Net project, which is a global study of internet freedom. We look at the state of internet freedom in 65 different countries, covering 87% of the world's internet users. And we score different countries based on how easy it is to get online, um, what the internet looks like once you're online, and how our, our human rights are protected online in each country. You recently wrote a, a column in the uh, Washington Post with one of your, your, your colleagues, and you write that the coronavirus epidemic kind of presents uh, a new range of challenges for, for democracy and for, for human rights in general, not only in authoritarian regimes, but also in, in open societies. Historically speaking, have you seen similar crises, whether public health or, you know, perhaps terrorism, that has these like short-term and both long-term impacts on, on human rights and democracy? Yeah, we have. Um, states of emergency, moments of crisis are often a flashpoint for human rights violations or democratic decline. Um, and there are a number of reasons why. Um, so emergency times often create shortcuts to, for authorities to expand their power in ways that may not be allowed in normal times or in ways that, you know, during a normal time period, there might be significantly more legislative oversight. So that can be really attractive for authorities who want more power. It also, you know, governments acting in good faith can also, this can also happen to them. It's not just, you know, your authoritarians. Um, because once a state of emergency is um, enacted, governments can get used to um, enhanced power, and then it can be difficult to give up later. So the really good examples of this have to do in national security context or terrorist attacks um, in the U.S. post 9-11. Um, certain laws such as the Patriot Act actually enhance surveillance. Um, and then we saw that, you know, some of those provisions are still here today, uh, mm -hmm. decades later. Um, and then if you could look at France. That's another good example. Yeah. In 2015, after terrorist attacks, they imposed a state of emergency that was then extended six separate times. And once that state of emergency actually ended, they passed a new anti-terror law that basically enacted some of those 
same powers into permanent law. Um, so this, you know, kind of what's happening is, is nothing new. Freedom House's research has um, kind of cataloged this before, so it's really concerning that current restrictions in states of emergencies, we want to make sure they don't become cemented power that can happen long after the outbreak's brought under control. Yeah, I have family, you know, living in France, and I know whenever I go back there, it still surprises me to see the military or police on the street with, with weapons, which is something that we didn't really used to see at all. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that anti-terror law that I just mentioned actually expanded um, the military's power to detain and question people who are suspected of terrorism. So that's a the prime example of, of these things um, having a very concrete goal and purpose and how they just sort of expand into everyday life. And when it comes to public health crises, repressive regimes are currently using the coronavirus as a pretext to kind of crack down on, on human rights for political purposes. Could you, could you perhaps cite a few examples? Not, I mean, we'll go on to China after, but yeah. more generally and what we're seeing around the globe. Yeah, China's a whole ball of its own. Um, but, you know, I think there's really sort of like three categories of restrictions that we're seeing. The first one has to do with the free flow of information and censorship. Obviously, there's China who's targeted journalists and, and removed content from platforms. But, you know, Egypt has also targeted a Guardian journalist for reporting numbers that were at odds with government reports. Uh, Venezuela arrested mm -hmm. a journalist and his family and interrogated him about sources for coronavirus reporting um, and we've seen there are you know a whole host of new fake news laws that are criminalizing content um, that are easily can be weaponized against activists um, and have been the second big category that we're going to get into um, is surveillance so I'm not going to go too in depth now because it's huge thing right now, but really the, the rise of tracking apps um, that send real-time location data to authorities, often with little oversight. And then these, you know, increase of broad sharing agreements between the private sectors, whether they're social media companies or telecommunication services or credit card companies in the case of South Korea, mm -hmm. that per very intimate information going directly to authorities with limited oversight, avenue for appeal for folks. Um, so that's, you know, sort of the surveillance package. There's also this whole emerging technology enhancing thermal scanners and facial recognition. And then the last kind of category we're seeing has to do with increase in arrests um, and detentions of particular groups of people. So here is really where we're seeing coronavirus um, exploited. So let's look at Cambodia, for example. Um, Cambodia, uh, Cambodian authorities have had years long crackdown on the opposition. Now they're citing coronavirus as a reason to surveil and, and detain, um, you know, Know, opposition mm -hmm. figures. Um, the same in Azerbaijan, this is honestly one of my, you know, favorite examples is they, police in, in Azerbaijan cited a gathering and mass restriction to actually shut down an opposition office that only had four people in it. Um, so clearly not a mass gathering. Yeah. Um, and then just ordinary folks who are being arrested and detained for social media posts in places like Turkey or Thailand, who are just talking about the virus mm -hmm. or, or saying they don't agree with how their government handled it, um, are really getting cracked down on. So let's talk about China. I mean, one of the reasons China is interesting is first, because it's where everything kind of originated from. And we have seen the whole propaganda, conspiracy theory, you know, narrative evolve over time. But I'm also interested in 
kind of the technology, for example, surveillance that's being used, because we also know that China can easily export these technologies to other countries. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the more repressive measures that you have seen coming from China, you know, not just confinement, but also perhaps some drones that have been used or facial recognition tools. Yeah, definitely. So we have the traditional tools they've been using for years now that have now been repurposed. Um, I'm talking about like enforced disappearances and arrests. Um, you know, I think the, the example a lot of folks know about is three Chinese citizen journalists who were disappeared and then um, are now expected to, or thought to be in police custody activists, professors, ordinary users who are just being detained for spreading what the regime says are rumors online. Um, and then, you know, the more, like China already has a very sophisticated censorship and surveillance apparatus. So we're seeing that deployed for this purpose, you know, and on the censorship side of things across their platforms, such as WeChat, which is a really popular messaging app that, you know, has millions of daily users, not just in China, but globally, which I think can speak to the broad reach of Chinese censorship around the world. But there are also this other streaming platform called YY. We, uh, a group called Citizen Lab, they do an amazing group out yeah. of University of Toronto. Yeah, they're absolutely fantastic um, folks, really helpful research for us. But they found keyword censorship on both WeChat and YY that showed that it wasn't just content critical of the government um, that was being just wiped away. It was just, you know, generic, innocuous health information like, hey, where can I go to find this? So all of that was just being taken off the platform and also just regular users were having their accounts suspended. Okay. Um, and then on the surveillance side, we know that they've kind of rolled out these new invasive contact tracking apps and quarantine apps. Um, so, you know, one of them is called Alipay, which the New York Times actually looking at the code of the app found out that it was sharing information just directly to police, mm. um, which even in China, the Chinese system of digital authoritarianism, such direct partnership is, um, you know, really interesting and relatively novel. And then on like the facial recognition side, which is, fascinating too is they're claiming to do all these new upgrades with thermal scanners and um, facial rec and other AI enabled tools. So one company called SenseTime actually announced that they're creating new facial rec that can identify folks even with a mask on. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's, can be sometimes difficult to tell the accuracy of such claims, um, but it just shows the extent to which the um, Chinese government and a lot of these a lot of these companies are just sophisticating all the tools that they already have. Are we seeing these these tools? Do you think they were also used against the Uyghurs? We know that the Uyghurs, you know, are trapped in, you know, in camps, and I know there was a lot of um, technology being used against them to monitor them. Are there the same tools that have kind of been expanded to? Do you think to the larger Chinese population? It's a great question. So one of the things that we've sort of found in our, our China-focused research is that Xinjiang kind of serves as a, a region for experimentation for a mm. lot of people. So years ago, when a lot of like the rise of facial recognition and mass surveillance could kind of be pioneered there. And then once they found that it was, you know, effective in social and political control, it then started to spread to other parts of the country. So the, I think the, you know, the, the short answer would definitely be yeah. And um, I mean, we obviously these days, I think we notice more than ever the kind of importance of a, of a free press and how important it is to, you know, to have reliable media to refer to in these crises. How much 
what's the impact of this crackdown on the media and the free press on what's the impact on, on, on public health? especially now since this is a global pandemic. You know, zooming in on China specifically, I think one of the big news that came out the past few weeks is that China just expelled American journalists from the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. A lot of them, I think. Yeah, those were explicitly expelled. And then sources like VOA, Voice of America, I think that's our acronym, are, were forced to hand over information about how they do their domestic operations. So I think, you know, these independent outlets, particularly international journalists, um, mm. have really been pivotal to provide a window into what the Chinese government is doing, not just with coronavirus, um, but, you know, especially now when we are all glued to our TVs and with the coronavirus starting there, I think it's gonna have a really long-term effect of, of how, how it's going to impact um, all of us, you know, losing some really important journalists that were, you know, highlighting whistleblowers there. I don't know what that's gonna look like long-term, except that I think it's gonna be quite bad. Um, that's how we found out a lot of important information about how some of these tracking apps were used through New York Times journalists, how certain ther thermal scanners are being used. Um, so now that those folks won't be able to be there anymore, um, I think is you know really bad for, or for Chinese press freedom, but also just press freedom globally. But I, I mean, we spoke to a few experts and researchers on this, and they say they're they're learning now a lot about how the Chinese kind of propaganda and uh, system works just by looking at um, the ecosystem right now and kind of strange collaborations between Russian um, and Chinese media and then Iran jumping on, on the bandwagon all the time and having the same kind of narrative. So I think it will be important to watch in the future as well. Another question uh, about perhaps, you know, we've seen, I've seen debates at the start about how authoritarian governments are better perhaps suited to keep, you know, to confine people and, and keep things in order and, and keep people inside their houses and close everything down compared to like more democratic regimes where clamping down on civil liberties is just not, it's not just not accepted. What, what do you think about this debate? And, you know, what can we, yeah, where do you stand on this? And what, what, how can democracies best balance guaranteeing basic freedoms and with the need to fight also the virus? It's a great question. Um, I think it goes as no surprise as a human rights and democracy researcher. I don't agree with the, the premise that authoritarian countries are better at this stuff. Um, I think that, you know, zooming in on the limitations of the free flow of information and suppressing journalism. Mm -hmm. That is not good for public health. We saw in China the ways in which during December and January, they just crushed any um, information coming from not only journalists, but just doctors on the front lines that are trying to get this information out. That took away essential time that could have been used to really protect people and try to get a hold of the virus. Um, so, you know, whether it's blocking websites like Iran or, you know, just blocking social media platforms altogether, limiting access um, to information through, you know, journalist access to information. Mm -hmm. Really, these, these efforts kind of deny citizens um, communication tools and independent information at a time when we all need it the most. And that's whether we just need to find accurate health information on the internet, whether I need to contact like my loved one if I'm getting sick, or just simply if I don't have 
access to an uncensored internet, I can't do my job or go about my daily life while we're all isolated. Mm -hmm. um, so I think authoritarian regime, they, because of their censorship and the limitation of the free flow of information, they're actually hurting public health yep. efforts. No. Um, and then it is, you know, it's going to be some of the balance. I think, you know, Freedom House knows and understands that there are going to be some restrictions to fundamental freedoms. Um, and we just need to make sure that those restrictions are, are gone about with particular safeguards in mind. Um, so if you think about like surveillance, ensuring that any new surveillance measure is actually scientifically justified mm. um, in limiting uh, a virus spread or that it's also proportional to the goal that we're reaching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because I think at the end of the day, it's important to remember that in any crisis, whether it's pandemic, national security, natural disaster, governments can take really dramatic actions, but they often choose not to just because the costs greatly outweigh a potential benefit. Um, and the benefits of a democracy and, and human rights are so important both during the crisis and also you know, the pandemic's going to end. We need to ensure that our democracy and our human rights protections don't end with it. And I think these days, either with the coronavirus or something else, you know, there, there, there's talks about new technologies to to track down people with the virus. And I know there are some, obviously, some positive sides to this, but in the long term, what, what's the risk and how can we ensure that the tools are limited kind of in duration and that we protect the data because we never know. I mean, the data might be useful now, but in the long term, who's going to keep that data and what's going to be done with it? How can we also perhaps set up a, an independent oversight or make sure, you know, the data doesn't just isn't just given to anyone? Yeah, those are all great questions and, and the right ones to be asking. Um, I think that a lot of the new and expanded surveillance um, initiatives happening right now just aren't even uh, addressing that. Um, whether you know it's these mobile applications where you know mobile apps on your phone are often in incredibly opaque about how data is collected, how it's processed, who's doing that, who has access to it, whether that mobile app is selling that data to a private mm -hmm. company or maybe a foreign government. We just don't know. Um, and governments are so are racing to just put this stuff out there without really thoroughly thinking through the costs. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, other ways in which authorities are trying to work with telecommunication um, companies to get access to geolocation data is just opening up new sharing agreements that, you know, traditionally would need judicial oversight. And once I think these authorities figure out how easy it is to get access to that, um, it's going to be hard to go back to the model of, no, you need a court order for good reason. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think some of the things we can do now is make sure that before we enact these tools, First, we need to prove that they are helpful to public health and they actually serve a benefit. There's some discussion about how actually certain geolocation data, it, you can't get as precise as six feet. So I want to be able to tell if yeah. you're six or 15 feet. So if you are using that data to reprimand someone who didn't allegedly stay in quarantine, we need to make sure it's actually accurate, yeah. right? And then on top of that, we need to ensure that there is some type of oversight body that's reviewing this, um, that it, that oversight body is independent. And, you know, we need to make sure that all of these programs are really limited in duration. And that limitation in duration should be built in from the beginning, because we know once authorities get access, they're not going to want to give it up. Um, and then finally, we have to have 
very strict firewalls on how this data can be used and who can access it. It shouldn't be the case that this health-related information can be exploited for deportation purposes, mm -hmm. whether that's in the U.S. or Egypt. Yeah. Um, or for political social repression. And then also, you know, making sure that private companies can't get access to this. We don't want an environment where three years from now, an insurance company has the information that you had coronavirus um, and then won't give you a, you know, certain quote. So I think there are a lot of different safeguards we can put up. It's just going to take a lot of really pushing these safeguards through and, and convincing folks on why it's really important. So I know Facebook is already kind of somehow collecting medical information, especially on, on, on mental health. You know, they, they monitor the message, kind of messages that, that we publish on, on, on Facebook. And I think that's the biggest risk right now with, with these new potential technologies is giving away the medical information, which is, you know, obviously highly private. And like you said, it could be used against you. Yeah. Um, exactly. and, and I know um, what I found really interesting is that you guys at Freedom House have already kind of published some, some principles for protecting civil rights at this moment. So can you tell or perhaps listeners, you know, a little bit about some of these and why, why we should, you know, they should go and read them? Um, so Freedom House, we've been working really hard on what we can do to protect democracy and rights during a pandemic. We understand that this is a grave threat to public health right now. Um, but we also have seen, you know, Freedom House has been doing research on democracy for decades. Mm -hmm. um, so we understand how emergency measures can be adopted to combat dangers now and then how they can be exploited later or have discriminatory impacts um, or harmful effects. So we came up with five key principles um, that we want governments to keep in mind while they're enacting certain restrictions. Um, and these different categories that we cover um, is states of emergency, we cover restrictions to free assembly, association, and movement, um, censorship, surveillance, and then the last one is free and fair elections, which is a really interesting um, discussion of how do we hold free and fair elections during times of social distancing. Yes, um, and why. We are in the United States, so. Yes, yes, we have a big election coming up in November. Yes. Right now we're having our primary, primary. season. Yeah, so it's really important right now um, and, and Freedom House's position on um, what we need to do versus um, when a delay might be um, okay. It's we, we lay out some really big thresholds that need to happen before you can delay. But the top line of all of the five different principles is really that, you know, any restrictions must be clearly communicated and transparent, mm -hmm. well-grounded in law, limited in duration, and then necessary and proportionate to protecting public health. Um, so, you know, whether it's surveillance, free assembly restrictions, you know, free assembly restrictions might make a lot more sense to limit right now versus something, um, you know, the free flow of information, there's no reason that needs to be limited right now. So mm -hmm. we apply these different guidelines to different restrictions on human rights um, and democratic principles to kind of get at um, what we think government should be doing. And then over the next few weeks, what we plan to do is kind of roll out new analysis that looks at different components of these principles and kind of does a deep dive into them um, so people can kind of learn our thinking around what's justified and what's not. Oh, that's great. I'm yeah. looking forward to it. Well, yeah. Ali, thank you so much. Uh, my guest today was Ali Funk. She's a research analyst at Freedom House. Uh, thank you very much for your work. I know all of us working in human rights are actually very busy, even though we're working from home. Yes. Uh, so thank you for the good work, and I hope we can uh, talk soon.